You're listening to Arts Talk Radio, and I'm Michael Hasted. We bring you interviews as well as news relating to all aspects of the arts in Holland, which are either in English or where language is no problem. We concentrate on events in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and the surrounding areas. Arts Talk Radio Online. Features on the arts in English. Later, Greg Shapiro will be reading the second extract from his book, The American Netherlander, and we'll have some brand new music and poetry from Jonathan Nagel. But we start with another report from a city that we're always happy to visit. I'm in Delft, and Delft, as you will well know, is famous for two things. One is the famous blue and white pottery, and the other is that it's the birthplace and the place of work for Johannes Vermeer, the famous painter. And I'm in the Vermeer Centre in Delft, and I'm with Luke van Riet, who is going to tell us all about it. Now, this is, um, it's not called a museum, because it doesn't have any original works of art, does it? Yeah, that's correct. We are called an information centre, Vermeer Information Centre in Delft. And uh, yeah, this, this, this centre is actually founded because we have no original paintings in Delft. And we have actually nothing in Delft. Even the houses where he lived are disappeared. So about uh, 10 years ago, uh, some people had the intention, let's do something. And it ended here in this centre where we have, that is the main, it's the core of it. Uh, there we have uh, all the known paintings of Vermeer here in reproduction. But the interesting thing is, although they're reproduction, and there are how many? 37. Because there's some contention over that, because some people say there are 34 Vermeer paintings, some people say 30. Anyway, the 37 pictures you've got here, they are reproductions, but they are actual size, and they're in chronological order, which is very interesting to see, because you can't see that anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, that is that's also the reason why we have regularly people from televisions everywhere from the world. If they want to make a program about Vermeer, they can here film all the paintings together uh, without traveling. Yeah, the scattered paintings over the world, you should not do that anymore. You do it here. Mm. And on the movie, on the film, you don't see the difference between an original and a reproduction. Of course. So the building itself is, well, it's an old guild building, isn't it, from yeah. the 17th century? Yeah, it's the guild building, so called the St. Luke Guild. And in Dutch, the St. Lucas Gilde, and uh, that is the, the guild special for artistic professions, like potters, like painters, like uh, graphical printers, engravers, and glassmakers. Mm. Because not uh, an enormous amount is known about Vermeer, is there? Um, we, we know where he was born, but we don't. We're actually sure which house he was born in. Yeah, we are now sure that we know the spot. The house is not there anymore. It is an other house, and uh, where he lived, uh, yeah, he lived as a young, as a kid, is gone. And the house where he lived uh, with his family and where he produced the majority of his works is gone as well. But um, all his work was 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 based in in Delft, and I think a lot of the interiors were done in his own house. So that you see a lot of the same furniture yeah. and the same paintings and everything else. But one of his most famous paintings, which is called Little Street, which is the front of a house and you can see a woman working in the doorway and another one working down a side alley. There was a big argument about where the actual location for that was or whether it was a fictitious house. In a view of the years, there are about ten different theories. And the most recent one is from Professor Grijsenhout. And he, well, he, he, he announced that it was in a street called the Voldersgracht. 
And uh, yeah, it is okay to me, but uh, I say there are so many different theories that I would say make your choice. The museum itself consists of what? We're, we're now on the ground floor, which is a, a cafe and a shop, and the shop has lots of books and postcards, and uh, seems to be that the girl with the pearl earring is the most predominant picture, and you can buy reproductions of that on anything from a plate to a bicycle bell. Yeah. That's right, that's right. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is also chosen some years ago as the most uh, yeah, interesting, the most beautiful painting ever produced in the Netherlands. This painting was chosen. And it's also in the Netherlands at the Morris House it, in The Hague. It is still in The, the Hague in the Morris House Museum, indeed, okay. yes. Okay, let's go upstairs. Right, we're now on the first floor, which is a big room, and there's a, a, a nice table which shows, I think, uh, Vermeer's techniques. It is uh, actually a uh, second intention of the center. It's not only showing the painters we have here uh, from Vermeer, but we also would like to introduce some yeah, techniques and uh, problems to be solved, problems yeah, for the painters to make good paintings. And what we see here is an impression of uh, the, the paint itself. So there are, there are jars of, of, of pigment, powdered pigment, and um, lots of information about various paints. I think Vermeer actually used a lot of paint which was relatively expensive and difficult to come by. Uh, yeah, so-called uh, lapis lazuli, that is what Vermeer in intensively used, but it was possible uh, for him because his mother-in-law was a very wealthy lady. So Vermeer used a lot of uh, yeah, lapis lazuli or ultramarine is another name, and uh, we have here also little pieces of that. But he used some more uh, pigments, and we have there a list of the ten pigments he obviously used in his works. Because in those days artists wouldn't go down to the local art shop and buy a tube of paint, they had to make it themselves from scratch with the oils and yeah. the various pigments. Yeah. Yeah. We have the pigments here as an example in little, little pots and we have here also an example of the most common uh, binder that is linseed oil. Right, and here we have a lesson in, in art, and this is um, all about perspective and how perspective works. This is the perspective area indeed. We, we show there in the corner and there you see the camera obscura, which was actually an invention, actually more or less in the Renaissance period. And in the time of Vermeer, this thing was well known, even in a carryable version. And the advantage is of that, that camera is that you can see how something in three dimensions will be translated into two dimensions. Because um, painters' art in, in those days was very much a craft. It was like a silversmith or a goldsmith or a butcher or a baker. It was yeah. very much a trade rather than yeah. what we would describe now as an artist. No, who no, very no. Much it's just uh, yeah, hard-working hard people, uh, labourers. Uh, so, and, and they yeah. used tools, I mean, yeah, like, like the camera to get it's the camera. To one. It's the first painting where he obviously used the technique of pin and thread. And uh, that means that at the point in the painting or outside the painting where the lines, the perspective lines come together in the disappearance point, it was then the first practice to put a pin in the, on that spot and a wire. And you can put some chalk or carbon on the wire. And with that, you can also prepare the correct uh, position of lines in the painting. And there we have a screen where you, we can explain a little bit more about the effect of color. Because he, he actually did, compared with somebody like Rembrandt, his colours were really quite bright. Bright. Uh, the light was bright because Rembrandt was in the yeah, the clair obscure uh, artist, uh, say low key and high key. Dif this are the differences you can compare Rembrandt and Vermeer. Mm. Where Rembrandt is the, uh, the, the low key and Vermeer is the high key painter. And you will have the results from this painting. Oh, there's, there's, oh I see. Ah, in the corner here, there's a little, like a little 
film set really in a little corner of a room which is a, a Vermeer room and you can actually sit here and have your picture taken in a Vermeer, Vermeer room do a selfie hmm. do, you, do you provide costumes as well? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so there's, a, there's a sort of square on the floor, about two yeah. metres square, and everything fits into that, and there's a chair which is half in and half out of the, the set, but it's been cut in half, so it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't leave the set of black-and-white tiled floor. Yeah. Right, onward. Good. Right, we're now on the second floor, the top floor, and this is where all the pictures are, all the reproductions of Vermeer's paintings. And each painting has got quite a large section to itself, which is, uh, and it concentrates on the detail and explains the detail and the context of the de detail and the domestic items. Um, so these paintings, although you have all the reproductions here, and they're all chronological and the correct size, which is interesting to see, they really are spread around the world. And I think yeah. there are f almost fewer in, in, in the Netherlands. And in, in America, I think there are America, a lot in America. America, th 13, Netherlands, 7, Germany, 6, uh, UK, only 2, uh, Ireland, 1, uh, Austria, 1. France too. Sounds like the football results. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. What you see here is actually uh, more specific because we want our intention to be an information center. Yeah, yeah. It was very remarkable that that not, not only Vermeer but all the artists, even also writers or, uh, or playwriters, they used symbols to give more information. And the remarkable thing at Vermeer is that all his additional information is in relation to love and, and, and erotic. And that is what we expose here. And we have here explained the number of those symbols here. You can see them. Right, there's a whole wall here, about so 15 or 20 little pictures, each with symbol. There's a little sort of, um, there's a bowl of fruit and there's a hand. Um, playing a keyboard and the lady doing what's she doing down there drinking wine drinking wine and a woman sleeping resting her head on her hands and a double bass orange cheek so did he drunk too much yeah <clears throat> this is a prostitution scene the guy is already yeah starting the job by, by <laughs> touching the breasts of the lady and on the other hand he's paying her and all those symbols have a meaning. Here we see a painting on the, on the background, and that is a ship in troubles at sea, which is very often used as a metaphoric symbol of the marriage. There, as you say, there, most of the paintings um, include or portraits of, of women. Do we know who many of these women are? No. No, do not know, because we don't. Actually, Vermeer is an unknown person. When he died, too young, too early. He, when he died, uh, his wife immediately became in a bankruptcy position, and all the material they have is sold, gone. And the paintings were yeah, spread over, after 20 years later, spread over because one owner had the half the total production of Vermeer in his position. But when the guy died, his, his whole collection, 21 Vermeer paintings, were sold on an action in Amsterdam in, in 1696. Mm. And then, then the, yeah, the view on the paintings is lost. Because I think he was, in his day, he was quite well known. He wasn't as famous as Rembrandt, but he was quite well known. And then after his death, I think he was more or less forgotten for 200 he was, years. He was not too, too known, actually. He no. was not too, too well known. But he wasn't unknown, whereas for 200 and, years and, he was and, totally and, forgotten. He was forgotten, and uh, he was actually in an accident, a French... Yeah, a French guy, a French specialist who came in the Mauritshuis and he saw the painting View on Delft. 
and he was so extremely um, yeah, surprised about that and the quality, he started to write about it in France, and he influenced the French writer Marcel Proust. And Marcel Proust began an enormous yeah, quantity of works, but he started to introduce people who did study Vermeer. And they have also very interesting stories. And he also, has then also produced the so-called Le Petit Pan Jaune dans le Mur. Le Petit Pan yeah, dans le Mur Jaune. And it is a very well-known uh, yeah, um, fact. And French people visiting his center are asking, where is that? Where is the Petit Pan? Where is the Petit Pan? But the, the, the incredible thing about it, the little yellow wall, is in the painting. It is really right off to one side, to the right-hand side, and, and very, very small and insignificant. Yeah, there are three alternatives. But you can, you can also dis dispute about it. But you have three light spots in the painting mm. and uh, yeah I, I leave it it's up to you what you like to but do but this, this, this is the one the few uh, sort of landscapes which Vermeer painted Vermeer, it's quite a long painting it, which it is, is a view over the water to the city to the, to the city but yeah if you call it a landscape it, I would say it is more a townscape actually. yeah but I mean it rather than domestic or portrait. only two the little street and this one is painted yeah. outside and the rest is all an mm. internal but you, even the, the little street which is a close up of the exterior of a house and you can see what's going on inside yeah. so yeah. Um, the view of Delft is, is actually quite unique. Yeah, yeah, that is right. Right, we're now on our way down to the lower ground floor, to the basement, which is a bit darker and more like an art gallery than upstairs. And, oh, it's a huge room, and this is where all the reproductions are. And they're lined up in chronological order, in the same size, and they're, wow. So it's very impressive to see them like this. Yeah, it is indeed. We have him here in chronological order. And the remarkable thing is that you, you start looking to the young Vermeer, the younger paintings. He is still in his process of becoming a master in painting. You see, he used big, big paintings. And the, 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 yeah, the, the, the subjects are mostly religious or mythological. But they're not they're not so big. I think the big I mean that's this oh, the first one's about a meter square and there's one a couple here which are about a meter and a half by a meter and a half. If you look more around, you see that the paintings slowly become smaller, 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 smaller. And what, what is a technique which was also developed typically in the Netherlands and it's called fine painting. Fine schilder is the name. And it has to do with the fact that in the past big paintings big were for churches and, and monasteries, uh, religious uh, yeah, clients, but in the 17th century it was here the majority was Protestant. So there was no Catholic church. It was even forbidden to be Catholic. So the, the art of painting ging, introduced himself much more and oriented them much more on private uh, buyers in the house. And then you have better smaller paintings because the houses were not too big as a church or so big as a, as, a, as a convent. And even rich people would like to have as much as possible paintings on one wall because that, that reflects yeah, wealth and, and intelligence. So you see, for instance, the famous milkmaid who is here is a very small painting. Very small indeed. It's about, what, 40 by 35 or something. Okay, let's work, move around a little bit further. This is an example here, where you can see that Vermeer did not control the technique of the, the, the wire and the pin. The perspective, yeah, very, no perspective on the floor. It's not good, the perspective. And there you see the first painting, where he used it. And they have found it in this, this, this um, X-ray or infrared um, techniques, they could show that on this spot was indeed a little pinhole. The music lesson. The music lesson, yeah. And the names, the Dutch names for the paintings, they are derived from the, from the auction in Amsterdam. 
because we even did not know the names. For and so there was no information. Vermeer didn't actually put any information on if the back of the pictures, no date or anything. No diary, no letters, nothing. Hmm. And that is very interesting for writers because a writer can, yeah. You can make it up. <laughs> can I make it out? <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. And nobody can contradict him. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, there's an awful lot to see, a lot of interesting things. If you're interested in Dutch art, if you're interested in the Golden Age, if you're interested in Delft, or if you're interested specifically in Vermeer, there's an awful lot here. Uh, the only thing that's missing is the actual originals. Well, Luke, thanks very much indeed for that. Uh, most enlightening. And I would recommend that everybody in Delft or who visits Delft comes to the Vermeer Centre because it's well worth a visit. So, that's all for now. Thanks very much, Luke Van Riet. It was a pleasure to meet. Thank you. Arts Talk Radio Online. Jonathan Nagel is a musician and performance artist based in Amsterdam. We first saw him three years ago at the Delft Fringe Festival. Well, Jonathan will be back at this year's festival in June and we'll be talking to him in a later programme. But in the meantime, here's a teaser track from his new album, which is called Eventually. Eventually, I conclude the way is the way. Without pretense, without hypocrisy, this makes a gorgeous last line to my letter. Harmless yet merciless, like early dusk on a cold winter's day, it feels peaceful to know that it is time to leave but I might as well stay. Eventually, I pack my few belongings in a bag. One person and a handful of stuff. Nothing else distracts from the generic room. It could be a Paris hotel or a lodge in the heath. That's hard to tell. Another breath, a hug, and one more cup of tea, if you will. It does not make a difference anymore. I have never felt ready, so why would I now? Eventually, I pause just for a little while. Without want of mercy, I take a moment to realize that I don't need my keys. Busy but idle, like gentle ripples down by the shore of the lake, memories rush by endlessly. They don't mind if you hold on or forget.
eventually, I understand, nothing ever changes. Without the urge to explain, I draw a bird on a blank paper, rip it in half. Like a warm meal in my stomach, this moment fills me with satisfaction. If there is no aim, does that mean you should not wait? was Jonathan Nagel with eventually from his new album of the same name. The reader was Julian Hamilton. The album will be released on May the 13th and can be bought on Bandcamp and iTunes and is available for streaming on Spotify, Apple Music and all other common platforms. Arts Talk magazine provides the perfect companion to Arts Talk radio with reviews and previews in English of cultural events in Holland. Whatever you're interested in the arts, our international team of writers will always provide something new and exciting to see online. That's Arts Talk magazine, all one word, dot nl. Arts Talk magazine, dot nl. Arts Talk radio online. Greg Shapiro is well known on the Dutch comedy circuit, especially at Boom Chicago in Amsterdam. His third book, about being a stranger in a strange land, is called The American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales. And Greg came along to Arts Talk Radio to read us some extracts. Today, Chapter 2, Boom Chicago, The Early Days, featuring stories of famous Boom Chicago alumni. In the previous chapter, we just talked about Seth Meyers. Next up, Pete Gross and the Junkie Bike. Peter Gross came over with Seth Meyers in 1997. And yes, the Junkie Bike market was still alive and well. At one point, the newspapers started reporting on it, and a Boom Chicago colleague was caught on camera. On the front page of the Dutch newspaper Head Parole. They were doing an expose on the rampant sale of junkie bikes in Amsterdam, and they had a triptych of photos chronicling this sale with the faces blurred. But to anybody who knew Pete, it was obvious. That man was our colleague, Peter G. And the location was even right next to Boom Chicago in the Kortelatsetvarstraat. Now, Boom Chicago was not implicated, but we enjoyed referring to Pete as Peter G. Next up, Amber Ruffin as the boss. Amber first came over in 2004, and by then Boom Chicago actors were performing for lots of corporate events. With corporate events in our own theater, we would have a certain amount of control. But with corporate events on location, the situation would frequently get out of control. And right from the start, Amber responded with her trademark over-enthusiasm. For corporate events on location, we used to rotate the job of contact person. We rotated in and out of each other's roles in casting our shows, so it seemed logical to rotate the role of corporate contact. 
as well. Anyway, it seemed logical to us. But pretty soon we noticed a discernible difference in the way corporate clients reacted to me, a tall white male, and our female colleagues, or our black and female colleagues. There was once a series of corporate events we did for a telephone guide. Yes, in the 2000s, that was still a thing. Now, on that show, as it happened, Amber was the contact person. She'd made contact with the client by phone before the show. She'd coordinated our arrival time, and she ended with, see you there. Now, when we arrived, sure enough, the client did not see her there. Instead, he made eye contact with me, the tall white man. Would you like to see the stage? I looked straight at Amber, and I said, I don't know. Let me check with your contact person who contacted you earlier. It wasn't the first time that this had happened, and I enjoyed deferring every time to Amber, who was on location, my boss. Now, most times the client would shake it off and say, oh, oh, you're Amber. Oh, right. We spoke on the phone. But this one client contact could not make that cognitive leap. He looked from me to my colleague, Tarek, a black man. Oh, are you the one I spoke to by phone? No, that was Amber. And then it dawned on him. And for that brief moment, and then for the rest of the day, he kept referring his questions just to me. I kept having to say, I don't know. I'm not the boss. It was super annoying. And now I can almost imagine how Amber must feel being black and female. But what I cannot imagine is how she manages to bounce back. In this case, she made a joke about the situation by creating a new name for our client, Scrunch Face. Because some poor people are born with a face that everybody just wants to scrunch. Next up, Ike Barinholtz and the poll. Ike Barinholtz. He came to Amsterdam in 1999. On stage, he was known for playing the macho, likable doofus, and offstage, not much different. Ike was the one who introduced Real Life Fight Club to the late-night improv show in which Joe Canale would make jokes about Ike and Ike would try to punch Joe in the face. Ike was the one who put on a special backstage show once he discovered that farts were flammable. And Ike had pull. It was like for every new Dutch drug he discovered, his body invented a new pheromone that the Netherlands had never smelled before. Ike was at my wedding, and he was around when my little daughter was born. And now flash forward to the Boom Chicago 25th anniversary and my daughter now turning 18. Ike couldn't believe it. And at the after party, I saw my wife talking to the Myers family. My son was talking to Rob, my colleague Rob. And my daughter was talking to Ike. Part of me had a small heart attack. Um, does he know that she's not yet 18? But in fact, what I was witnessing was my daughter asking Ike, what is it like to work with Zac Efron? Ike replied, gee, I don't know. Let's ask him right now. And he texted Zac Efron while my daughter watched. He said... Hey, Zach, I'm here in Amsterdam where this girl wants to marry you. <laughs> Zach Efron texted back, awesome, tell her I say hi. And my daughter is still blushing. Next up, Jordan Peele and Zwarte Piet. Jordan Peele started his comedy career in Amsterdam in 2001. He was so young. By now, Jordan has won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for the 2016 film Get Out, 
And now I'm wondering how much inspiration he might have gotten from his time in Amsterdam. Now, it would be easy to make the joke that Jordan might have gotten inspiration from the amount of weed he smoked while he was in Amsterdam. So, yes, I'll go ahead and make that joke. Jordan smoked so much weed while he was in Amsterdam, he was like Cinderella. Every midnight, he would transform after 12 bongs. Now, a quick story about that. In 2002, Boom Chicago did a stage swap with Second City Theater in Chicago. In fact, that was where Jordan Peele first met Keegan-Michael Key at the improv set after the shows. Now, Boom Chicago wanted to bring all of our tech gear for video and effects because Second City didn't have that stuff then. That meant that each of us actors had to bring one check-in bag with clothes and one extra check-in bag with tech items like Beamer, Video Board, Signal Splitter. And then the moment came when Jordan Peele gave us his classic recipe for how to sleep on the flight. Weed. We all went outside at Skip Hole. That was the smoking section back then. Jordan said he'd got this strong indica weed and it's guaranteed to knock you out once you get in the plane. Or before we got in the plane, as it turned out. Pep Rosenfeld and I, we were together, both developing a kind of paranoid high right in time for the security check. And this was right after 9-11. So they had these interrogation stations set up before you'd even get to security. And sure enough, the first thing they asked was, did you pack your bags yourself? And for the first time ever, the answer was actually no. Now, we did our best to bluff our way through, but both of us were sweating bullets. And the agent said, you look uh, rather nervous. Anything you would like to tell me? And that's when Pep confessed, yeah, our colleague gave us some weed uh, in the smoking section outside. And it was pretty strong. And so we learned a valuable lesson on that day. Your weed tolerance will never compete with that of Jordan Peele. Okay, back to Jordan's Oscar and the film Get Out. In this film, Jordan Peele's main character, Chris, is invited to leave his home, go visit a bunch of white people, and feel like he's on stage the whole time. That pretty much sums up Jordan Peele's life in Amsterdam. Was Jordan the token black guy? Well, apparently he thought so. Because in 2002, Boom Chicago hired Colton Dunn, also part African-American, and Jordan later revealed that he was afraid for his job, assuming that no comedy group would possibly want two black guys in the ensemble at the same time. Now, in the film Get Out, the bad guys aren't overt racists. In fact, they're progressives. And Dutch culture is famously progressive, tolerant, open, multi-ethnic, making it all the more jarring when you encounter Zwarte Piet for the first time, which Jordan did in 2001. I watched as Dutch folks insisted that Zwarte Piet is not intended to be racist, ignoring the effect that it may have on people of color. So that whole experience may have been inspiration for Bradley Whitford saying in Get Out, oh, I'd have voted for Barack Obama a third time if I could. There's a poster for Get Out with the tagline, just because you're invited doesn't mean you're welcome. Oddly enough, at the same time Jordan was winning his Oscar, the Dutch prime minister was running an election campaign ad called Celebrating Sinterklaas Doesn't Make You Racist. It was also in that campaign that the Dutch prime minister published an open letter to immigrants in the Netherlands with the phrase, if you don't like it here, get out. So there you have it, Nederland. 
you can claim partial credit for Jordan Peele's Oscar. All you have to do is admit that to some people, they really do experience Svarta Pete as a little bit offensive. That was it for Chapter 2. If you want to hear more on this topic, guess what? There's an entire extra chapter in the book called The Great Svartapit Debate. I'm very proud of that chapter, and I hope you will check it out in the book, The American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales. If you want to hear more, check out the audiobook at storytell.nl, and if you want to buy the book itself, you can find it at hollandbooks.nl. That was American comedian Greg Shapiro, and that's all for now. But we'll be back soon. In the meantime, all our earlier programmes are available from either Arts Talk magazine or on the popular streaming platforms. If you have any comments, we'll be pleased to hear from you. I'm Michael Hasted, so please join us again for the next Arts Talk radio programme. But until then, it's goodbye. Bye. (laughs) 